0: If you want to get closer, you certainly can. Uh, although the, I think the speakers are quite sufficient for all of you that are here. It, maybe if you're older in the back there, with the longer beard, it could be covering your ears. Uh, but I'm looking forward to sharing uh, and opening up God's word with you today. Um, my hope, my goal, my desire uh, is that you leave here understanding God's word better. Um, what I say to you, or what my secondary thoughts, or my ancillary thoughts. Aren't nearly as important as the Word of God. God's Spirit has empowered His Word to do His work, and hopefully that—that that is what I communicate today, so that you leave here with God doing a work in your heart with His Word, and in turn that He uses that for His glory. As number one, He forms and shapes your heart, right, personally. But secondarily, that then you take that heart then, and whoever's in front of you, God uses you to engage a very lost world. So that's the goal today as we look at God's Word. If you have God's Word with you via phone or actually a physical copy, I hear they're still around. Um, But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to be starting in verse 26 and going through chapter 2, verse 5. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting in verse 26 and going to verse 5. And I guess, theoretically, I have to open that as well for myself. I'm going to read it now, starting in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, Wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you a testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for all that you have accomplished on the cross, and as we look at your word today, as you describe what has happened then, then through the words of Paul, may our hearts be changed, may we wrestle with it, may it be an active time of us hearing your word and abiding by what it says. Lord, do a work now. May I be out of the way as much as I can, but used as a vessel for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know about you, but we're at a festival, right, which tries to portray the arts in such a way that, wow, God is a pretty creative God. We see this through many instruments, many bands, many different styles. It's pretty neat to see. And I have always loved the music world, and I have a music degree. And one year in college, my roommate was actually an illustration major. Now, maybe I'm different from some of you, but the reality is that my ability to draw and understand like if I were to draw a tree, stopped basically at the age of uh, second grade. I I can't make something three-dimensional on a page. I don't get how people do that. And so I'm fascinated by art, people who draw something and create depth and a perception to it. And so I look at him draw all these things, and he has all these things that he hangs up in his room. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty amazing that you can do that. And I try to copy it, and I can't. I don't get shadowing or anything like that. But as I have been in many places around the world, I was in the Louvre, right, in in, in Paris. And you see all the amazing artwork that is just ginormous that took some months and years to paint. And some of those paintings are under the type of painting and style called pointillism. Pointillism. Now, if you've never seen a painting up close... That is under that pointillism, it's pretty amazing. And maybe you stand back and from maybe 100 feet away, you're like, wow, I see pretty clearly what it is uh, portraying. But as you get closer, and as you get closer, and as you get closer, you realize that this entire painting is made up of these microscopic little dots. And every dot is shaded a particular way so that at least as you stand back, you see one greater picture, but as you get closer, you see that picture with so much more clarity and realize with such precision what has gone on for that painting to even occur or even happen. And it blows my mind because I can't even draw, much less take dots and shade them into such a degree that it shows this great big picture. And I'm in awe of people who have the skill to do that. Well, This is exactly what Paul is doing as he's writing to the church in Corinth. He's bringing them back to the cross, reminding them not to look past all that is there. Corinth was kind of this major city. It was a hub of sorts, right? It was the go-to place for almost anything. It was where philosophers, well, well, they philosophized, right? They would look for anything on the corners, right, to talk about and espouse their wisdom. And much like a coffee shop, you could go to any corner on any street, and there's somebody who's professing the wisdom that they supposedly have that the world maybe can connect to or communicate with. Much like that coffee shop, it's the latest and greatest to be found. But Corinth is also where all the traders, they would trade and in abundance. It was a gateway city. Every clothing style that you can imagine could be found there, the ins and out, What was fashionable of the day, that was where you would go, to Corinth, right? They would come through, it was a port city. Traders would trade. Do I have any people who are foodies here, who just love food, who love food? This was the place to go for all the spices, for all the stuff that you would shove in your stomach. What was the goodness, what was being created of different spices and different, this was the place to go, Right? It was Corinth. It was that gateway city for all cultures, maybe an amalgamation, if you will, of many of them coming together, and you would see all the diversity that the world had to offer. That idols, idols would often abound due to the various cultures that were there. And there was plenty of gold, right, to carve any of these images, these physical images that these cultures would bring in, that they would worship. In essence, what we see in Corinth is much like what we would see in New York City. Maybe you would see it in L.A. Maybe you'd see it in Philadelphia, maybe Miami, New Orleans. It was that gateway city where everything came into it and everybody could see what was the new and the latest all the next for entertainment, for wisdom, for wealth, for status, for all the opportunities to succeed and make a name for yourself. Maybe you thought to yourself, if you lived there, what could be better than this? You were in the hub of everything that was going on. Your heart would be captivated. It would be like in the middle of the most culturally appropriate engaging hub of the day, what could be better? Well, this afternoon, hopefully, I want to commit our attention for the next 40 minutes or so to the wondrous cross. How does the wondrous cross fit into all the hubbub of what culture offers today? And how did Paul see it as applicable and the most necessary thing to engage a culture like Corinth? The cross, particularly Jesus Christ crucified, is what Paul saw as the most significant and essential way to capture the hearts of those caught up in a world engulfed with everything at their fingertips. And it's the very thing that should capture our hearts today as well. So, if that's the case, I want to dig into these scriptures. These verses, one by one, look at them, go through what they mean, and then talk about applications and implications of getting it right, what Paul says, and getting it wrong, of understanding the cross as we look to it, how it affects our hearts, and how it affects those to whom we proclaim the gospel. Because if we get the gospel wrong, we get everything wrong, including our hearts, where we're going and where we're telling people to go. We want our hearts to be caught up with the right things when we look at the cross. And Paul begins this passage, right, first reflecting on the state in which they found themselves prior to Christ. If you're looking at Scripture in verse 26 that we read, not many people were recognized as wise, he says. Many of them didn't come from academic roots, meaning they weren't the brightest bulb in the box, if you've ever heard that before. In fact, many of them were not public figures or acknowledged to be a person of influence, right? Oftentimes, you talk about influence to influencers. Get, they're the gateway to all of these other people so we can have this domino effect of influence. Well, Paul is saying they weren't that. They weren't wise. They weren't the influencers, right? Not only by academic standards, but by monetary standards. Many of them weren't known as being upper crust, meaning rich, wealthy, of the elite, so to speak. They weren't headlining festivals. They weren't on the preaching circuit. Society didn't have them in the first tier. Many of them were not at salons each week finding the new thing to do with their hair and what color to paint their nails, right, in order to gain access to the right party. Yet, and maybe you see the verb that I see, Paul's statement of not many of you What he's pointing to not many of you implies that at least some of them, some of them were a smaller percentage, not many, but some of them were in those places of influence. So Paul paints this picture of the end to each spectrum, right, represented as a recipient of Paul's letter. The rich and the poor, the popular and the not so popular, the influencers and those who you'd pass by without a single thought. Well, then Paul ends the passage in the first few verses of chapter 2 regarding how they as a church, because Paul's writing to this church that's in Corinth, he's writing to them how they as a church came about, how they found themselves coming together, right? It was this message delivered to both the high and lofty, the weak and lowly, and to everyone in between. This is the message that those in Corinth would have heard directly from Paul's lips. It was his, if you will, his enticing call. This is what he says, that he didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. Right, He didn't come with all of these big words like we use today, esoteric, cerebral, all these minds speak out here. He didn't come with these high and these lofty words. He didn't segment his audience as if a particular class, a, pers- a particular ethnicity, or a particular race in any way, shape, or form, the high, the low. The- he didn't separate it in any way, shape, or form. Okay? He didn't have one group hearing one thing and another group hearing something completely different. His message was consistent, plain, and simple. And in in chapter 2, verse 2, we hear it. Paul says, quote, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If there was a mic drop, he would have done it. Maybe there was a scroll drop. I don't know. But the reality is that I I knew nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified rich person i knew nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified poor person i knew nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified barbarian scythian slave greek free i knew nothing except Jesus Christ and what him crucified that's all he knew. It wasn't lofty. It wasn't wise, according to the world. But that's all he knew. That's it. He delivered the message with fear and trembling, he says. Meaning he came not in his own strength, not with any confidence in his own abilities, not his own wisdom. He didn't go to all of the leadership seminars that might be out there, or how to lead a great church, make a big church, do these things with church. No. He came not with his own wisdom, fear, trembling, trepidation. He came with the basic information, not his testimony necessarily, or the newest techniques on how to witness to unbelievers. The message Paul would deem sufficient was Jesus Christ and him crucified, and Paul would point them straight to the cross. It was a beeline. There were no hard paths. It wasn't a mountain people had to climb and go around, find this clue, that rock, turn over this, do this, hop on one foot, turn this way or that way. It was a beeline, and Paul said, The cross is where I'm going, so let's start there. Now, you may be saying, at least in today's age, with the resources that we have to help us better evangelize, right, other than Scripture, that's a bit bold. Maybe you're looking at me and even reading Paul saying that's a bit naive, or maybe even foolish. Didn't he build that friendship bridge to evangelism? Didn't he have a big event where people were having fun first and then kind of mix in something about this guy, Jesus? After all, it's a vibrant city, so it's important to engage them the same way in which they're used to being engaged, right? We need to engage them where they are in the way that they are used to being engaged, right? That would be smart. That's the best way to get their t- attention. That's the best way, in essence, to set the hook of Jesus, because Jesus needs help setting hooks. But not so. Not so for Paul, but why? Why does Paul think this way? Let me give you an illustration. There were some EMS people here with me, but if you are in emergency management services or you happen upon an accident, right? And you see at that point in the accident that you see a child on the ground or an adult on the ground or somebody injured in that accident, And they have a severed major artery, okay? For those of you who don't know what that is, that's not good. You bleed out pretty quickly, actually. But on top of that, you see that the person has scrapes on their arms, their legs, their hair. They have an abrasion. They've got dirt all over. They're completely drenched, maybe radiator fluid, whatever it might be. And you go and you see and understand the severed artery as what it is. Like you have seconds to address that. But instead of addressing that, what you do... Let me, let me get your hair right. Because when the medics come here, it's going to be important that that part is where it needs to be. Hey, let me tighten that braid up a little bit. You know, that, that abrasion, we need to just uh, brush this off a little bit. There's some glass over there. and Who bedazzled that shirt? And you start fixing that shirt and whatever. That sounds ludicrous, right? Absolutely crazy. But Paul sees it plainly for what it is, Right? He goes in, he says, Jesus Christ and him crucifies, it cuts through all of the external longings and the distractions, and it gets to the heart of the matter, which is laid out in the middle verses, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time in these middle verses here, why he goes right to it. So let's reread them, starting in verses 28 of chapter 1 through 31, that's where we're going to land and be here for a bit. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Awesome. God's taking humble people, and with the wisdom of the cross and what's there, he's proclaiming that goodness to people who are way smarter than they are, maybe academically, maybe in regard to culture and their influence. That's awesome. That's really cool. You can take that away. Great. We're going to settle in the next verse here. And because of him, right, you are in Christ Jesus, and listen to this, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Paul says, right, get this, that at the cross, Christ revealed and became some things to us in verse thirty. And like the church in Corinth, we need to be rinded of what Christ became today. Remember I said at the start, if we get this wrong, number 1 for our own understanding of the gospel, we are missing out and potentially could forever miss out eternally. And on top of that, if we get this wrong, then when we stretch our hands out to evangelize to the person in front of us, disciple our children, and we don't know what took place at the cross, then there's a potential that we're inverting the gospel or leaving holes in it. And we want to take advantage of every opportunity we have. And we don't want to get this wrong. So thus, I'm going to slow down. We need to see the cross as something to be cherished for our own purpose in worship. And we need to realize that it's still the foolishness that we should have and use to reach the lost around us. In essence, if you're not pointing them to the cross and what was accomplished in spite of you, then you're not pointing them to Christ. If in our evangelism, and in our friendships, and in our ways that we attempt to, if we're not pointing them to the cross, then we're never getting to Christ. And on top of that, if we're not pausing and looking at the cross deeper, then we're going to miss out on the benefits of what was accomplished there. And in turn, our worship will be lackluster and in our evangelism will be incomplete. And that's not good. Not for us and not for a dying world looking on. We're missing the mark. So here's four things. The first of four things that Paul says about Christ in verse 30 is this At the cross, Jesus Christ became wisdom from God, he became the wisdom. Right? At the cross, the Father revealed in Christ his plan to rescue humanity from certain death. Ever since Genesis 3, right, where sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, we severed the intimacy we had with God. We needed to be rescued from ourselves. Our hearts were constantly bent on our own appetite. We want to please ourselves and devise ways in which we can run our own lives in our own wisdom, right? In our own wisdom we would never see God. We would never see God. Look at Cain and Abel, and everybody asked, look at Noah after the world was wiped out. Look at his children. We would not want to see God. The Bible says that in our own wisdom, we weren't actually looking for ways to reconcile with our creator. Romans three ten through 12, which echoes Psalm 14. It says this, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. Read, read that. We're not wise. No one. I don't care who you are, how long you've been in church, what family you came from, what name is at the end of your tag. No one understands. Everybody at some point needs to come with that reality that you are not wise enough to know God. No one seeks after him. That includes my children and yours. No matter how amazingly you disciple them, no matter what church they're in, they have to come to the end of themselves and realize, I don't get it. My soul is bent in on myself. I love myself. You got a two-year-old and a three-year-old. Do you know that? Say amen. Yes. Amen. Left to ourselves and our own wisdom, we would continue to serve our own desires. We would continue to drown in our ignorance, the blind leading the blind. But God, but God in his wisdom revealed to us on the cross his plan to rescue us, making a way through Jesus' sacrifice to become personally aware that God is faithful to his children. Through a cross, God awakened our hearts. Through death, God brings life. We would never think of that. It's not in our minds. He hadn't abandoned us. At the cross, wisdom from God was displayed, and we were rescued from the muck and mire that consumed our lives as we lived in complete ignorance, not chasing after God, as Romans says. Number two. At the cross, we see the righteousness of God, that Christ became our righteousness. At the cross, it was our sin that was being punished. And a pause there and let that resonate to anyone who hears this. At the cross, it was your sin, it was my sin that was being punished. That's going to have implications for us later on down the line as we get to some of the application part. God's wrath was poured out on Christ because of us. God's wrath was poured out fully, wholly, and completely on Christ because of us. And in exchange, the avenue was opened up that we could receive Christ's righteousness. Picture that. Christ is there on a cross receiving the full wrath of God, every inch of it, because of us. And in turn, it says, right, Paul says, that he became our righteousness. Does that blow your mind? We gave him our sin, as vile as it is, and he gave us his righteousness. That was what happened at the cross, There we stood drenched in sin, separated from God. If God is holy, then we certainly are not. If God requires holiness, then our sin, right, it presents a problem. We don't want to face him because we are incapable of cleaning ourselves. But at the cross, Christ took the punishment we deserved. We often sing about this in worship song that Christ took the blame, that he bore the wrath. And in turn, Christ, he imputed. What that means is Christ deposited into our account, which had how much in it? Nothing. As a matter of fact, it had junk in it. That's the best word I had in a microphone and where I'm being recorded. And he put into our account, right, imputed, he put into and deposited his righteousness. That was the exchange, Awesome theologians and preachers have called it many things, the great exchange or the glorious exchange, I think Spurgeon calls it. That's what happened at the cross. Christ became our righteousness and he imputed that to us where he took on our guilt and our wrath at the cross. Are you looking closely? Do you see the dots? Do you see how it colors the picture of what Christ done to us better? 2 Corinthians 5, 21, listen to what it says, and Paul says this so amazingly clearly, in somewhat of a tongue twister, but follow the pronouns. For our sake, that's you and me, sinful wretches that we are, and what we offer to him. For our sake, he, God, made him his son to be sin, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, right? So that in him, in Jesus, right, we might become the righteousness of God. We give him dung, and he gives us life, and life abundantly. Is that what you see at the cross? Are you looking more closely at the cross? Christ took the wrath we deserved, in turn we received his righteousness. Man, you could stay on just that thing forever and be full and be full hold on though paul goes to the next thing number three at the cross we see our sanctification our sanctification prior to the cross right if you read the old testament particularly cleansing came yearly through the sacrifice of animals i think we know that, right? But at the cross, our sanctification to live lives purely, right, to live lives holy unto God, right, was made possible as God's Spirit would now be deposited into us to live a holy life. Holy life means to be set apart, right, as God's, and to be sanctified. To be that purified. Think of a, a washing machine, just washing us, purifying us, making us clean. Christ sanctified us, he became our sanctification at the cross. The Father set us apart, set us apart, he said that is my child, and he sets us apart, right, as his possession, so as to work in and through us, molding us, forming us, shaping us into the very image of his son through that sanctification. Not only did Jesus take our sin, but in turn, he gives us his righteousness, right? Becomes our sanctification and says, may I make you look like my son? How amazing is that? What kind of exchange? I don't know what makeup artist he is, but he did something with my heart and where he's shaping it and forming it so that by his spirit, I now am molded and look more like his son. The intent of bringing us fully into his presence one day. That's the goal. We're not there yet. There's an already not yet. It happened at the cross. But God right now in our lives is sanctifying us, shaping our hearts moment by moment, disaster by disaster, victory by victory, and he's shaping us to look more like Jesus so that one day we will see him face to face and be changed completely. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I know it's happening now. In this life. And God, by His faithfulness, has become our sanctification. Romans 8 29 says this For those whom He foreknew, He predestined, right, to be conformed, to be shaped, okay, to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's talking about His resurrection, the firstborn, and then we would be following Him. That conforming happens to the process of sanctification. Again, Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Cool thing, right? God shapes our hearts for his good pleasure, and we benefit because we look like Jesus. I don't know why. It's God's goodness, wholly and completely, Right? At the cross, God sanctified us so that his spirit may be in us, working his will to please the Father, glorify the Son, and conform our hearts to look more like Christ in the process. And the last thing, number four, before we get to application here. At the cross, Christ became our redemption. Christ became our redemption. We were captive souls trying to find our way to freedom. Remember, we talked about the blind leading the blind. That's where we were. We didn't even know where to look. We couldn't even offer our hand if we were drowning. We were dead in our sin, Ephesians said. We didn't reach up and grab Jesus. We didn't know where he was. We didn't even know we should be looking for him. We were dead in our sin and our trespasses, and we were slaves to our sin. Meaning, we, sin ruled our lives. And we had no problem with that. We were fine with that. We were pleasing our own appetites, right? But in the gospel, right, in Matthew twenty twenty eight, when our hearts were captured and we didn't know up from down, Jesus said this, the son of man, that's Jesus, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a ransom for many. Jesus highlights that he is a ransom for many. That's for you, for I, for those who trust in Christ. He's redeemed us by the payment of his own life on the cross. He's obtained for us our salvation. The author of Hebrews says that Christ secured for us an eternal redemption by his blood, meaning we are his forever. When when, when it happened at the cross and he has said it is finished, That means our salvation was procured, we were redeemed, we were ransomed, and that is a final thing. Nothing changes with our status. God has redeemed and he has ransomed us, and that is forever. That means there's a trajectory, there's a goal in that, and that's for us to see him face to face. Not just now and in this life, but to see him even more face to face. It is for freedom, ransomed freedom, that Christ has set us free. That our souls would not be captive anymore to the sin and the bondage that we love to bask in. So, Christ became wisdom, right? Christ became our righteousness. Christ became our sanctification. Christ became our redemption. And it all happened at the cross. Don't look past it, stop there for a while. Look at the dots. See all that was accomplished there. Paul didn't need to preach anything other than Christ crucified because nothing more was needed and nothing could be added to that. Nothing. Nothing else would suffice. You can mine the treasure trove for your entire life and still not have enough storage for the riches that you will find as you bask at the foot of the cross and what happened there. Paul didn't merely say, Jesus died for you and moved on from there. That's a great start, but stop and talk about what that means. Jesus died for you could mean you're talking about a U.S. Army person who died for their country, and that's all they understand it to be. Hey, that's a cool thing. Hey, freedom's pretty awesome. Not everybody has that. No, we're talking something eternal and a trajectory before the God of gods who created your very soul. Where wrath and grace divides the two and Christ sits in between. Jesus died for you, though a good start will not suffice. It doesn't suffice. It doesn't speak to even greater needs that they have questions on. They don't understand that. And if we don't understand that and break that down for them and look at the dots and the majesty of the painting that happened at the cross, then they will lose out on the message of the gospel. But do we know it? Do we understand it? Have we grasped it ourselves? Are we alive in that reality? Although that's a good start, in that Paul pointed them to the cross and he let them know what happened there that Jesus became to us the wisdom and the righteousness and the sanctification and the redemption for any and all who look to him in faith. There is more at the cross than just a man named Jesus who died. Look longer, look harder. And don't just stand at a distance, see the beauty and the grace and the magnificent way in which salvation came to us. Get that in your bones. Get it deep down inside. May it be a well that will never run dry, and it affects your worship as an individual who's been saved and redeemed at the cross by Jesus Christ. That's what Paul wanted us to do, and that's what Jesus wants us to do, so that we can then go, other, to, go to others and proclaim that same goodness our longing for wisdom amidst all the offerings of the world, our desire to be set apart amidst a culture that seems to have everything in every group vying for our attention, our hunger to be shaped by something greater than ourselves, and the desire that our lost souls would be home. These things can all be seen when looking at the cross. All can be found in Christ and what he accomplished there. Yet for the Christian today, we relate not only to Christ's work on the cross, but the cross now, right, it's an identifier for us as well. Galatians 2.20, a very familiar verse to all of us. I have been crucified with Christ, right? This is our relating to the cross. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. One author put it, for the early Christians, the crucifixion of Christ was not simply a singular event, right? It quickly became, as God's defining moment, part of Christ's identity, but also theirs. And for those who are in Christ, the cross is an identifier of who you are. Why? Because of what happened there. These are the glorious truths of the gospel that Paul wants the church in Corinth and the church in 2022 to know. The exponential impact of the cross was so good, your soul can drink from its fountains and it never runs dry. See also the gospel of John chapter 4, Woman at the Well with Jesus. When we sing how deep the Father's love for us, we could live a thousand years and never plumb its depths. Jesus accomplished so much. But have we stopped to unpack, ring out, meditate, and truly look closer at the impact it should have? First, on our own faith. And secondly, right... Have we thought about what it means as we preach the gospel to those hurting and dying around us? If we don't truly grasp these increasingly and to a greater measure, meaning we don't stop grasping these. It's not a one-time realization, a profession of faith, and then we stop understanding the gospel in deeper measures. No, it's a continual understanding of the aspect that God is sanctifying us for what happened at the cross, right? We're growing deeper as we're abiding in Christ. And if we don't do that, if we're not growing in that, I believe that there are two consequences for us. Consequence number one. We become purely shallow and merely experiential in our understanding of Christianity. We go through life looking for the next big thing that God is going to do. Praying big prayers for big miracles yet to happen. Yet we still haven't grasped what's already been done for us. We haven't dwelled upon, meditated on, and find ourselves saturated in the reality of what's happened at the cross. Why? We're chasing something else this way because we haven't dwelled upon something this way because it's not satisfying to us. We're emotionally driven instead of theologically driven, meaning our understanding of God is so shallow we haven't grasped that and such, it hasn't affected our lives in such a way that it's satisfying us. And if it's not satisfying us, we're going on living life with this general information and we're living for more experiences down the way, of God doing something that we just might smack a label on. If you do this, God, then I'll be excited. Rather than, God, you've already done this, why am I not fulfilled by it? We've never plumbed the depths of a king leaving his heavenly throne to take the wrath we deserved and to give his righteousness to a people who were not even looking for him. We were hell-bent on serving ourselves, but miraculously, God wanted a people for himself and made a way possible. At times, I think the greater miracle, more than his resurrection and more than any physical healing, though those were absolutely necessary, please understand me saying that, The greater miracle is that God chose to die for a people who hated him. And that was you. And that was me. But God said no. He looked at the face of all of us who were grinding our teeth, who wanted our own way. He said, no, they're my people. I made a promise, and I'm coming for them, and I will fulfill my promise. And he went to the cross and the pain and the agony. And for the joy set before him, my friends, the joy wasn't the cross. The joy set before him was that we would be reconciled to the Father, making good on his promise back in Genesis when we screwed it up. He endured the cross. Have we plumbed the depths of the cross for our own benefit, our own fervency, our own understanding of where and why we're fulfilled? The second consequence is this. When we don't grasp the depths of what's been done on the cross, we don't proclaim it and explain it in our evangelism. If it's not in us, it's not coming out of us as we proclaim Christ to a dying world. Paul's entire point is that the cross was his primary message in a culture that had everything at its fingertips, and then all he does is he unpacks it. He leads with the cross, and then he just unpacks it. He doesn't look at all these gizmos and gadgets, the smoke, the mirrors, all of this stuff that stays on the peripheral. He goes right at it. And he says, the cross where Jesus died, that's where you can have life and have life more abundantly. And then he just sits there in that conversation and unpacks it. No matter what their color of skin, their demographic, their socioeconomic status, what state they're in, what language they're speaking, that's where he starts. And he just unpacks it. Can you unpack that? Can you show somebody the depths of the cross? Show them how it meets their hungering soul. Show them what it means to live in filth, but now be made righteous, that their sin has been paid for. Show them what it means to have their thirst quenched spiritually. Show them how their trajectory has now changed. Take them to where it is and where they're going to be one day before a God, hopefully with his favor because of Christ. He comes to them with this foolish message of the cross. Is that what we're doing? Are we engaging the lost world around us with the implications of what, the cro- what Christ accomplished on the cross? We can't if we don't actually know what happened there. And I will close our time with this. Unfortunately today, there are some who distort the message of the cross. Some will tell you to look at the cross because it points to your value. They may say, the cross shows your value. Look how valuable you are that Christ would die on the cross for you. I'm afraid to even ask for a show of hands, but it is very popular preached from people who suggest they are Christians. And I would suggest to you that number one, they haven't read their Bible. And number two, they certainly haven't dwelled upon what happened at the cross. In reality, when you look at the cross, it's the exact opposite. What we brought to the cross was our shame, our sin, and the reality of our guilt before a holy God. We rejected everything. We rejected everything about Christ and deserved his wrath. That's what we brought to the cross. When we look at the cross, think in your mind that's what we brought. It's the reason there is a cross. That's the value add we had for the cross. If we get this wrong, we invert the gospel and make the cross some feel-good story about us. How can I write myself into God's story? That's a dangerous place to be when you're not the author of life. We come just as we are, and we leave just as we want to be. Why? Because God is love, and he wants me to be happy just as I am. We help divine the terms of the cross and what we should and should not be repented of. And we think that the cross shows our value, the implication in your life and in your, in your evangelism, Excuse me, is that you bring something to the table, and in turn we offer an insufficient gospel. Anything built on Christ will stand. Everything else, everything else, if you think you bring to the table, everything else is sinking sand. If you think that you had something to do with your salvation of going from death to life, you are now building on sinking sand. Congratulations. You've inverted the message of the cross. This amazing reality of the cross that should impact our life and the lives of those in front of us is that in spite of our sin, in spite of our sin, right? In spite of the shame, in spite of us being filthy and willingly, meaning desirous to be shackled to our sin, in spite of our foolish thinking and rejecting our creator, Christ died in our place and moved toward us, making a way for us to be sons and daughters of the king, to sit at his table, to eat of his goodness, to be in his kingdom. He took the wrath in order for us to repent, to turn from the ways in which we please ourselves, and that is each and every way. We're not born with anything inherently good in us. If that's how you come to the cross, because you want to leave with something that you brought there, and you haven't laid down, you're in a bad place. Our entire trajectory needs to change when we come to life in Christ. Everything about us. Or else, we're inverting the cross for ourselves, suggesting that we have helped him in some way, and that we bring benefit to the cross, and in turn, that is how we will evangelize to other people, and as they go to hell, following you, that will not be a good thing. Get the message of the cross right, because it's glorious. In turn, as God deposited his spirit to us, now we can please the Father. And God's spirit lives in us, giving us abundant life, which won't fully be realized until we see him face to face. That is the message of the cross. I ask you, do you see that? If you don't, look harder. It's a glorious extruth. Ultimately, the cross points to the incomparable value, not of us, but of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's why the cross is good news because though we're insufficient, Christ did everything. When we look at the cross, our value isn't there, but the good news is all of God and all of his value bestowed on his son. He took our wrath and then all of a sudden our value came because of Christ on the cross. And after that, he gives us a spirit he gives us his right, righteousness. We can stand before the Father, and we can have a relationship with him again. And now our path has turned from destruction, from God's wrath to his goodness, to be with him forever, to experience God. Even now, by his spirit being in us, to experience God in such a way that we are no longer enemies of our creator. We're not friends. We're now sons and daughters of God because of Christ, because of the cross. So my challenge today is if you didn't hear enough already, look at the cross. Look more closely at it. Examine your heart. Do you understand what went on there? Paul tells us four things much more actually went on as you read more of Scripture. But understand the cross more deeply in your own self so as to check your salvation Understand what you're standing on. If it's holy on Christ, that's awesome. It's built on the rock. If you suggest that you add something to there and you can leave the cross with something, look at the ground you're standing on. Is it sand or is it the rock? Paul's encouraging us, know the cross, draw closer, see the benefits of all of what the father did because of the son, giving us a spirit so that in turn, the point of this is for us to be light and darkness, for us to tell others what happened at the cross. And that their longings, their hurtings, all can be found at the foot of the cross and be placed there. And in turn, they can get the righteousness that Christ purchased for us. I pray that you're encouraged today. I truly do. My hope is that I brought a more clearer picture because Paul did for me. As he paints a picture of what happened at the cross that you can go further back and see this glorious picture, or you can go closer and see the intricacies of what all was accomplished there, and that in turn it will change who you are. Our knowledge of God, our theology, will change our worship, our doxology. The more we know about God, hopefully in turn spits out to worship of him. How good the Father's love for us. I pray we understand that, that we see what happened at the cross because of his son, and that we're changed And in turn, those around us will hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that when we were turned against you, it didn't stop you from fulfilling your promise, knowing that we could never do it. But you came to us. You came, you humbled, you left your earthly throne and humbled yourself and came down. You carried that cross as we sing. You gave us righteousness, sanctification. You picked us up. You breathed life into our dead bodies, as Paul says to the church in Ephesus. And then you picked us up and you said, you can be carriers of the gospel and you can carry light into a dark world. Help us with that, Father, today. May we know the cross, its benefits, and may we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.